Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Never Strays Far is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook Cycling's Definitive Almanac. You can buy the very few remaining 2018 and 2019 first editions as a special bundle price for just £55 by visiting www.theroadbook.co.uk. And if you enter the discount code CLASSIC, we'll throw in a free musette and the very beautiful worth £7.50 with every order. And Chapter 3, the brand I created, founded in 2015, and it's uh, something that I've uh, always wanted to do, is bring to cycling a, a more creative individual style that isn't just based on one discipline, but multi-disciplines. And we're on the journey, and I hope you'll join us. Go to chapter3.com and see what we've got. Uh, there are lots of stories, there's products, there's uh, everything we hope that will help you find your next chapter in cycling. was a bit of a slog in all sorts of weird ways maybe it's just because it's stage three or something maybe we're suffering from some sort of fatigue but the race felt a bit sleepy today to be perfectly honest david i don't know i don't know why maybe is it because the i don't know you tell me that you know is it because five summit finishes is just a bit too much uh yeah i think so i think i, I think you've i've I'm always very cautious because I'm with you 100% in that it, was, it wasn't the most exciting bike race and it could be perceived as tactically sluggish. But they were racing pretty flat out oh, no for doubt. most of it. They averaged like 40, 41Ks an hour nearly to the top of average, to the top of the Cordula Madeleine. <laughs> and when you look at the calibre of the breakaway that had gone uh, and then, you know, and then the race behind and uh, yeah... I think that you run the risk, as you said, when you do a stage race this hard with five mountaintop finishes, with this caliber of peloton, you almost find that after the first stage, everything's set in stone. And now we know the strongest team is going to stay the strongest team, likely. And the people who aren't the best aren't probably going to get better. And so it does turn into a very controlled affair because it's when it is this demanding, it actually becomes all about your... Uh, your physical condition and form and yes there's tactics but not nearly as much as would be if it was a more complicated course uh so yeah i i think it's it's a kind of it's it's made its own bed the dauphiné this year it was just like it kind of fooled us a little bit as well that um davide formula's attack didn't it we wouldn't we didn't really we kind of like i think mentally just expected him to be caught it was a long climb the final climb 15 kilometers and his three and a half minutes i mean you know Absolutely, he's he's a he's a he's one of the best climbers in the peloton. Um, but I think, well, maybe we were all guilty of just thinking, well, that that'll be wiped out because um, as soon as as soon as they start attacking each other and the race explodes, which could have happened, to be fair, it just didn't happen. And he, mm. it's one of those, wasn't it? He's, you have to be in it to win it. And he just plugged away yeah. and plugged away. He looked worse than he actually was as well. It mm. was very deceptive. Very deceptive because he looks so he's got his very low cadence, he wrestles the bike, but then there were shots even those final few Ks. He's in the big ring. 
you know, going up a mountain. And it certainly, it goes against the kind of the, the trend of the, the spinning gears. And it's, not, it's very much old school for what you'd expect to see from something from the 1970s or 80s. Uh, but yeah, I think what the movie did was stellar because that, that breakaway of nine riders that he'd found himself in, uh, he obviously, none of them were pure climbers. And perhaps I think immediately on the lower slopes of Cordel de Madeleine, he thought, well, if I'm, as you said, if I'm going to go for this, I'm going to need to just go on my own. And it, it did seem like an exercise in futility because there was such a long way to go. The peloton was still intact behind. Jumbo Visma hadn't even hit the front yet. And he got over the top of Cordel de Madeleine with, what, just about four minutes, four and a half minutes on the, the yellow jersey. Actually, it was just under, I think. And then he was, then he had Wout van Aert and just destroying everybody for <laughs> over the top of the Cordel de Madeleine, down the descent. Even Robert Hessink, who would normally just sat on Wout van Aert's wheel until the mountain, just, I think, almost pa- kind of, he almost tapped out and was like, I'll take turns, Well, I'll take turns <laughs> to try and help him. and trying Because so, he knew he wasn't going to be able to do much when they hit the mountain. And then even then, Wout van Aert did the first four or five Ks of the final climb. Uh, it was pretty impressive. But during all that, and even when Wout van Aert was riding, that's when Chris Froome was being dropped. You know, and it's, we can go into a little bit. But the thing is, I think we said, we said this already, and we've got to be careful with, uh, it, I guess because he's a four-time Tour de France winner and he is Chris Froome, he's always going to have a lot more attention put on him. And he almost had a Chris Froome camera on him today everywhere in the Froome peloton when he's dropping yeah. back. And it was Froome cam. Froome cam. Yeah. And, um, but... I think the the only slight concern with Ineos is they're all a little bit on the back foot. Um, but there are a lot of other riders as well like that. There were a lot of leaders getting popped out, uh, perhaps, but generally a little bit later, I think. It's, it's, it was interesting uh, in the sense that it just looked really hard. Although it was, wasn't the most scintillating racing, you could see just the stress the peloton was under going up that final climb. And it was just slowly, slowly whittling down to the final K when nobody could really do that much, could they? Yeah. It was also something to do, I think, with... Um, uh, do you remember my when we did our preview pod, my absolutely glorious little uh, race preview package with that music that I put yeah. together, David? And I included the... Beautiful, like, beautiful yeah, thing. It was a beautiful thing. Um, but I included the... Um, actually, I had a little bit of a debate with our producers um, on commentary today as to whether or not it was appropriate really to start talking about Saint-Martin de Belleville being the setting for 120 days of Sodom and we decided for ITV4 probably nice. I'll probably just move on from that and leave it for the podcast um, but th- that's, that's pod material exactly but, um, but I'm just watching Julian Alaphilippe come into the line here actually and Chris Froome just a minute or so before him Froome's about lost another 16 minutes today um, uh, but the other thing I, I remember saying in that preview was that this was the first stage, in fact, kind of the only stage on this Dauphiné that has got a real, um, if you like, Tour de France structure to its profile. So valley road, valley road, valley roads, massive climb, huge descent, valley road, massive climb. It was very straightforward. I mean, obviously, murderously difficult, but Mm. very straightforward. And sometimes those profiles have a kind of have a neutralizing effect on the race don't they because it just screams structure and control for, yeah. especially when you've got a dominant team who can just do that lockdown so we know precisely how to race this bit and we know who's going to do it in fact we could have probably sat down with a pen and paper we wouldn't have predicted davide formula winning for sure but we would have, you know if we sort of like figured out how okay so how will jumbo visma be yeah. structuring their yeah. effort in the team bus right now we would have probably got it 95 percent right yeah 
Yeah, we would have done. Yeah, because it was, you're, you're right, it was very much like a classic Tour de France station in the sense that a breakaway, strong breakaway went uh, right from the beginning, and but not made out of potential uh, stage winners. Actually, it would have been if they're all on form and the race hadn't kicked off so, so far behind. Mm. Formula was a total outlier because the rest of the breakaway was almost caught by the top of the Madeleine. If you think, which just goes put into perspective how fast he was going. And then Latour was the last man standing and he was, even before they hit the bottom of the last climb, he was three and a half minutes behind uh, Davide Formolo, mm. which goes to show just how, the damage he did to that breakaway. So if you take Formula out of, that equa- out of the equation, that breakaway didn't even make it to the foot of this, the last climb. So that's how well he was going and how head and shoulders he was better than everybody. But I think today really was an example of um, probably a mountain station in the third week of a Grand Tour where is that structure and where you get all those hitters going in that break at the beginning. I mean, we saw from Tis Bernard, Peter Sagan, Bob Jungles. I mean, it was a fair kind of uh, Echepi Royale sort of thing. And But yeah, then it just turned into a, a very controllable race, mainly because you have that Col de la Madeleine in the middle, which is such a, a beast of a climb and such a, a leveller that I think it, that really did shut the race down completely. I asked you about this in the commentary, but what is it about the Col de la Madeleine? Do you, what experience, What happened to you? David, talk to us. Do you need a bit of therapy about the Col de la Madeleine? What, what dark, dark secrets um, does that mountain contain? Yeah, yeah Col de la Madeleine. It's your bête noire yeah. of a mountain. Um, and the Col de la Madeleine is... It's a, it's when I, st- I only stopped one Tour de France, the 2001 Tour de France, and it was on the Col de la Madeleine. And I stopped in the descent, and I'd had the most horrible first 10 days. Uh, I was injured from a crash in the prologue. And it was on the Cordula Madeleine where I, I decided that I was shutting it down. I couldn't do it to myself anymore. And I didn't do it on the climb. I did it on the descent down the other side. So I got over the top of it and then climbed into the broom wagon, essentially, on the descent. And from that moment on, because that had been such a dark... Um, ascent for me because I was dropped at the bottom knew I was going to stop and so there's nothing worse than that in your in the Tour de France to to put yourself through that and going up and everyone's telling you to carry on to fight but you've already let go and so it becomes kind of almost imprinted in your head that this is a this is a bad place for me and it's and ever whenever I raced it since I, I didn't you know, I, I could overcome it, obviously, but it was that kind of sense where there was just those ghosts that were that were on the slopes that I just couldn't ever fully get rid of, and and that's just the psychological side. The physical side is just it's a horrible climb because it's so long, it it feels like a few mountains in one because there's no kind of set style to it. The roads change, the the geography changes, the everything about it. You you almost get lost in the climb. And so there's no sense of kind of it ticking down. And often you do, do, do it from different sides and different ways. And so it almost, every single time I did it, it felt like I was, I was doing it for the first time, and it was, which, which made it even worse because I was always just back there at the first time I did it when I stopped. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and I think, and I, think you, yeah, I mean, I, if you're into your cycling, you've, done all, you've traveled around and had the privilege to go to see these mountains and do these things, often you will find that there is one that becomes your nemesis. Uh, and it's often from that time you've had a horrific day. Like you, you have yours, Perisol, yeah, which is your kind of yeah, your your ghosts. And um, but yeah, so so that's always. I, I think I don't hesitate whenever I'm asked what's the worst climb 
animal was called La Madeleine. But then I don't exactly have an answer for the best climb either. So no, 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 it's no, like no. Kind of I, I have to explain why. I love when people ask that. I don't know whether I ever explained to you why the Pay Resort was my bet noir, but now that you've worked with us all for a few years, you'll kind of like, you can identify with this. You'll, you'll know exactly mm. where, where, you know, what was going on in this story. We'd finished a stage, so this must be a year or two while you were still racing before you joined us on ITV. We'd finished broadcasting a stage that had finished in Bagnier de Luchon. And it was slightly chilly weather. We'd finished quite late. Um, so there's a sense that it was quite overcast and the light was already beginning to fade. And um, our hotel was about 25 kilometres away. Um, for some reason, we both, Chris Boardman and I, I think because we'd done some filming during that year's race, we both had road bikes with us. And Lycra, you know, unlike you and me nowadays with folding bikes and jeans, we actually had proper kit, right? And um, we looked at the map and we just, I think it had been one of those frustrating days and we just wanted to sort of, you know, blast off the cobwebs a bit and actually go for a ride. So we just looked on, on the map and went, well, it's only 25 kilometres away. So let's ride. <laughs> and of course, you know, because neither of us are very good at geography, really. It was only as you leave Bagnier de Luchon and you start that false flat that leads for kilometres towards the start of the Col de Peyresord. It was only at that point where yeah. Chris, riding alongside me, went, oh, it's the Peyresord. So it was the whole lot of the Peyresord. <laughs> and um, it was the only time, it was the first time, I think. No, not the only time, because in recent years I've, I've bailed and called for the broom wagon as well. But um, what happened was our, our crew in all their cars were obviously driving the same route. So one by one, they started to pass us. And we did the calculation, and we realised that the next time one of our cars was going to pass us, it was our last opportunity to bail. Otherwise, we were committed. It was full-on pay sword. And um, there was this bit of debate. We wordlessly rode alongside each other for about, um, you know, for about a minute, thinking, this car's coming by any second now. And then Boardman said, it's OK to fail. And I went, thanks, Chris. And we just got in the back. We got in the back of this car. We got rescued. But it really, it really, and everyone, everyone who's been riding in the, you know, numpties like me will, will identify with that feeling, actually, of kind of like, ah, oh, why? I can't. You don't want to be beaten by a man. Yeah. And it wasn't until yeah. the first year I started working with you and we took the folding bikes, we took the Bromptons on the race, that um, we'd finished over the other side, hadn't we? The Col d'Aspin side. Mm-hmm. And I... You didn't want to ride that day because you were tired. Or oh, you'd done some monster ride in the morning, I think. But after work, I got on the Brompton and rode back over the Pavo Sword in the opposite direction. And I think I've subsequently done it with Christian as well from that direction as well. Yeah. So I've done it a couple of times now. And it's slain. The beast conquered. is slain. Done. It's conquered it. Yeah. yeah. Ah, mountains. I'd love to hate them. There, do, do you not have any favourites, though? Do you not think... Did it never occur to you to think, oh, I'm glad that climb's in the race because I quite like the way that's structured? <laughs> not really no i mean anything over six seven k's just wasn't my cup of tea you know it was, it was only a handful of times in my career where i was good at 15 20k climbs but i i much preferred for my start of racing the, the shorter ones where they were more explosive yeah if six seven k's is explosive but um but yeah and, and i suppose one i had a really mixed relationship with Montvon too because i did have some great climbs up there and i had some equally horrific ones but because we're humans we tend to pick out better ones rather than remember the terrible ones so it was that was that was one that kind of i'd always go go to with a bit of hope um and then it would be probably just i'd get slain again (laughs) and then just wait till the next time and forget about it and just remember the time i was good and go back and do it again (laughs) yeah but uh but yeah david your uh, your wife your wife nicole is one of those um 
what's it called? She's done the she's done Von Two from all three uh, sides. Club de Sanglier. Yeah, she's done that, hasn't she? Club de Sanglier. Yeah, and one day she did the the three sides. She's a she's actually loves Mont Von Two. And I, I tell you what, if we were near there or going there, she'd just want to go do that again. She's crazy. Yeah. But um, that's a, that's a lot. That's a big day out. I mean, she'll say she cried, but yeah, she still loves it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as you would. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years ago, a couple yeah. of years ago, when I was working for a company called Exodus Travels, we we took a party of uh, lovely folk out to to, to ride Ventoux, and we did um, sort of three consecutive days, and we did three the three different ascents, uh, over, but over three days, you know, like a human being would, um, and we were all really chuffed with ourselves. And then we got to the <laughs> airport to fly out, yeah. and we were kind of like packing up our bikes and milling around, and there was this skinny-looking British cycling tourist, and he kind of sidled over to me and introduced himself, and I said, "So, what? You, you've been, you know, feigning interest, to be perfectly honest with you. Are you? Are you? You've been? Um, you've been riding much around here?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vontu." And I went, "Okay, well done." And he said, "What? Six times?" And I went, "Oh yeah, I've been here a while then." And he goes, "No, no just six times yesterday." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant! Yeah, yeah, that's not right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so what's tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow's another. Tomorrow's um, where do we go to tomorrow? It's Mejev, isn't it? It's the first of the Mejev um finishes. So the race finishes tomorrow in Mejev, and on um, Sunday in Mejev as well, because uh, it does. <laughs> not entirely sure why. <laughs> it does it well. twice? Yeah. Because they're doing it Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, but different, different, just, you know, different lazy. approach. Tomorrow we go into Mejev, and then um, on Sunday it starts and finishes in Mejev. So we're going to get to know Mejev fairly well. Um, for what? 4,600. Is that, that stage? Yeah, it's tomorrow. 4,660 metres of climbing. That's not nothing. That's a big old mountain stage. That's not nothing. Yeah. Is it? Because that, that, 4,000 is where you start to go, this is really, this is a... a a big, big day climbing. Do you know what? So that's huge. We had a little, um, a little flurry on a WhatsApp group that that has existed since last year's Tour de France. Um, yesterday, where Pete, pretty podcast Pete Kenyuk, is obviously watching this race quite closely, isn't he? Because he sends us little assessments and little mm. details every now and again. And he said, "Oh, Yumba Visma, they're going so well because they spent a month up at altitude in Tignes, which is where Tignes." His favourite place in the world. His favourite place in the world. And I, it's just, yeah. that's another thing you have to explain to the viewers, so, to, to the listeners rather. Um, we arrived after the day of the landslide um, to entertain eventually in the pouring rain, um, anticipating the arrival of stage 20, which if you remember was that shortened uh, stage up to Tignes. And um, listen, I'm not a fan of Alpine resorts at the best of times. I've never been skiing, so I've never seen them, you know, as you're supposed to see them, covered in beautiful crisp snow and all that sort of thing. I've only ever seen them in the, uh, in the middle of the Tour de France, really. Um, I don't think Tigny is particularly beautiful, the architecture, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, and we got there, and it was, it was, it was, we were really tired, and it was pouring with rain, and I was in a bit of a bad mood. And you two just went, oh, oh, this is lovely. <laughs> and, and kind of like yearns to be at an altitude training camp. What was that all about? Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, we stayed in a nice hotel, I think. I think that helped. So that put us in good spirits. It was quite our most luxurious hotel of the, the race, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And n- n- yeah, it was nice. It wasn't. No, it was a good hotel. It was nice. Uh, it was really nice. I remember. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of set the tone made us happy 
And then when we woke up in the morning and we looked out and we saw the, the lake and then just you're in this kind of beautiful green bowl of valley mountains all the way around you. And Pete and I were just like, what is this place? And we kind of made a decision the night before that we were going to go out for a mountain run. And so we ended up doing one of our stupid Tour de France adventures where we just went straight up underneath the ski lift, basically. And we couldn't. It took us, it took us like an hour of crawling, like, <laughs> like, I don't know, like baby mountain goats who just don't know how to do it. And then we got to the top and then we got lost running around. And, but anyway, we ended up having a great time. And then we got back down and then we came to the lake to walk around. And we were like, wow, there were like pretty cool cafes and beats and music playing and just a really cool vibe. And we were just like, why did nobody tell us about this? Well, this is altitude and this is not, it's like just stuck on the top of a mountain in a crappy hotel with a crappy restaurant that actually felt like you could have a life there. It's like, so yeah, it was, um, it was a revelation to Peter and I. Just a shame that we didn't know about it when we were actually bike racers because <laughs> now it's useless to us. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'd recommend it though. I think there's a bit more yeah. to it than that because I think you were slightly yearning for the uncomplicated stripped down simplicity of the task in hand at an altitude training camp oh, yeah. where you're simply there to kind of like wreck your body yeah and but tear it apart yeah, we day. did have a kind of it, it, it instilled sort of the rose tinted spectacles on us and but only because we were projecting that sort of that lifestyle into a place like teen i think where you could just you get up you just have breakfast you ride your bike you get back you snooze you get a massage you eat you go to sleep and you do that over and over again and we used to hate it and now at that point we were like we were such idiots that was like the best life ever and imagine if we could have done it here yeah so yeah all right let's just round it off because we're obviously not on form today it's clear you know you can hear it in our voices you can yeah the race sapped us yeah we're sapped mm. mate we we we, uh, we, 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 we we i thought we peaked yesterday mm. a little bit with the wittgenstein and the also also i'm quite disappointed in our listeners right because we put out a big appeal didn't we for philosophers to get in touch and to explain wittgenstein yeah. to us so far what have you had mm-hmm. on your timeline any Noth- response basically nothing very poor isn't it no not r- very, very poor and disappointed very poor and what's the word on bob yeah. roll yeah Bob, Bob Roll. Oh, yeah, I'll hit him up in the next couple of days, see if we can get him on Sunday, maybe. Yeah, well, that would be the last chance. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so yeah. is he actually... Tomorrow or Sunday. Is Bob commentating on the um, on the Race for Americans? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, okay. they're, doing it, they're doing it remotely as well, him and Christian Vanderveld. Oh, well, we'd love to, to get their perspective. It'd be really interesting to get yeah. their perspective, actually, wouldn't it? It'd be all about sex calls. Yeah, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom call with those guys. Yeah. 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 All right, let's give it a go. I'll hit them up. All right, let's give it a go. All right, man. Right, this isn't an award Speak winner. Later. Back See on form tomorrow. Tomorrow's another day, David. Yes, it is. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.